see if being with your breathing helps you improve listening, makes your listening a little bit more continuous, so that while you're listening, stay in touch with the breath, kind of in the background, humming along. A lot of beginners on this retreat. Uh, many of you Many of you are new to Vipassana meditation, relatively new or absolutely new, um, and we have a very short time together. I hope in some small way uh, what I can accomplish tonight is <clears throat> uh, give you some sense of uh, where this all goes, some uh, rough framework for this practice that you've begun, and even if we don't um, actually get into some of the things, a lot of the things that are talked about, to give you a sense of uh, where we are in regard to the, the whole process, and why, why do we do it? Why do we bother? As you know, it's not always fun. It can be very hard if you're really doing it. start from the beginning. Uh, the teachings of the Buddha, the meditation the practice that we're doing, um, have as the absolute basis the notion of enlightenment. Without enlightenment, there's no Buddhism. It becomes something else, just a cultural event, a uh, social cultural event for people to share in, still useful. But the core of the entire endeavor has to do with liberation. Um, probably you've all heard the many names for it. Nirvana, Buddha nature, original nature, true nature, the deathless state, the unborn, 
becoming a true person without rank. I like that one the best of all. means maybe we're not so true as we are now. And part of that is because we're very concerned with rank, how we stack up. And in the text, it's referred to as Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, complete and utter enlightenment. No regression from it, no falling back. But when you sent your check in here and you packed up and made all the arrangements for someone to watch the children, did you do it to get Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, no offense, mind you, but my wild guess is probably you didn't. And in a way, why should you? This is a, a relatively new introduction to this culture and we come for all kinds of reasons. Perhaps we have headaches or unlucky in love, want more energy, our girlfriend's doing it, everyone's doing it. If you're in Cambridge, it's... (laughs) It's starting to catch up to organic food and recycling. And so, if you've come here for any of those motives, I don't mean to be intimidating or imply that you're here for the wrong reason, because actually my own experience has been that it doesn't matter. Whatever got you in the door or whatever gets you to the cushion is not necessarily where it remains. And you may uh, come here or come to meditation or come to vipassana or meditation uh, because you have a hard time sleeping or you would like to have more energy. You want to be more popular with people or advance in your job. But as you sit, it doesn't follow that why you came here is necessarily why you'll continue to do it if you continue to do it. And in many ways, you're better off if you don't have a, what can become a very pretentious motive, like Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi complete and utter and full enlightenment. Um, I just finished a personal retreat just a few days ago, actually. Um, For a while, some friends who were away for a fair period of time, they gave me their uh, rather large house in the country and I was by myself. Someone, I got food. And... uh, was practicing much as we're practicing here for quite a few days and weeks and longer. And then uh, suddenly, in one sitting, I became hysterical with laughter. I had a memory of when I started practicing. It wasn't the immediate, but it was pretty early on. And um, I was more pretentious. This was the 60s. And so we had all kinds of things. And... um, I was definitely certain that the reason I was practicing was to attain enlightenment. And what the memory, the the laughter came about, and I had a memory of doing a self-retreat here at IMS up in my room many years ago when IMS first started. And I had a particularly good sitting, what we call a good sitting. The breath was flowing freely. 
the air was entering and exiting with no effort at all, just so smooth. This kind of very nice hum in the background. No worries, no cares. Everything was effortless. All kinds of love and compassion and joy in my heart. And my mind started to a little bit, sometimes in words and more, not so much in words, we're getting close, this is it. <laughs> Almost there. Anuttara <laughs> Samyaksam. And then the lunch bell rang, and I unfolded my legs, and I just went right, right down the line to get my lunch. <laughs> Wait a minute, what happened to Anuttara Samyaksam? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's great, but this is lunch. <laughs> But that isn't what really struck me so funny on this retreat that I just finished. That memory suddenly reminded me of a story which I thought was humorous when I read it, but I didn't see the connection with myself. It's a Japanese story. In Japan, they have a a theater where uh, monkeys play the parts of classical, you know, with different, a little bit like Shakespearean theater. And the monkeys are dressed up in classical outfits and are conditioned to behave in certain ways. And there's this, as the story is told, uh, one monkey is dressed up as a great king and another monkey is uh, dressed up uh, as a great warrior. And it's some very classical scene where they have a, some kind of an exchange with each other. And that's very quiet and everyone's watching. It's very dignified classical performance performed by monkeys and suddenly somebody from the audience throws a banana onto the stage (laughs) and the monkeys just ran right after the bananas. (laughs) You get my drift? (laughs) I mean, actually, they were playing these classical parts in order to get the banana, but someone was giving it to them so they didn't have to play the part. So whether you came here for that or not, I mean, that is, that is certainly the core of our practice. And sometimes that uh, is discouraging to people rather than inspiring. I think, well, I don't really know that I want to get enlightened or that sounds like such a total and all-inclusive commitment and would I just have to give up everything and leave my family and so forth? Or I probably won't make it. Uh, the attitude that we're developing here, and there are other ways to look at it, there are other ways to practice, even within Buddhism, is not to set up some extraordinary goal ahead of you, which we then imagine, we think we know what it is, and then to sacrifice all else in the service of getting to something that we don't even know about. We don't really know what it is, no matter how many books we've read. And in the process, perhaps compromising our life, striving, grinding our teeth, all kinds of things. Practicing in a certain joyless way, uh, for me anyway, like graduate school. Maybe you don't, maybe it's not true for you, but that's the way it was for me. This is not another graduate school where we're given something to run after and that the means doesn't really matter. It's the end that counts. In our practice, mindfulness is both the means and the ends. So you can relax. And the movement or the dynamic 
power of the of this practice comes not from trying to get somewhere, but from being where you are. That's what moves us along. So if you can relax into the moment, take care of the moment, fully experience it, that's what takes us to wherever it is that uh, these words point to. And every step along the way is, is worthwhile. That is, long before any taste or glimpse of our original nature, our true nature, benefits appear. If you're very new, of course, you have to take a lot of this on faith, at least for a while. But in, in the Dharma, in Dharma practice, faith is provisional. You're not expected to live on it forever. It's to help launch us. You have to have some uh, sense that what we're doing is has some value, is worthwhile, to arouse the energy to do the practice so that you find out if it is or it, is, or it isn't. And probably many of you know, some of the old-timers know, that uh, you do the palpable, tangible benefits that come long before uh, any perhaps dramatic breakthroughs. Really valuable ones where we learn how to be with ourselves, we become more loving, more gentle, and so forth. Okay, so that's what we're doing. And in this particular version of the practice, which comes from the original teachings of the Buddha, those of you who would like to when you get home, uh, it comes from a sermon that the Buddha gave called the Anapanasati, uh, sometimes translated as the full awareness of breathing. Thich Nhat Hanh has a little book giving you some sense of it. Buddha Dasa has a little book. These books are quite helpful. And there are 16 independent but interrelated contemplations, all of which include breathing, and which go from the calming of the mind, calming and concentrating the mind, helping us establish a stability of mind and body, becoming one with mind and body, moving through a familiarization with our feelings and all the various mind states, then beginning to see the, the work of wisdom firsthand, beginning to see the work of the Dharma, the lawfulness of it all, seeing how everything arises and passes away, and lack self. That's a hard one for new people. I don't know how much light we can shed on that tonight. Probably not a lot. But if it's, let's say, your original nature, just use that term. Let's say, so that we can all get some sense of it, that is a deeper, as we go deeper, a sense of being that goes beyond self-images and words about ourselves and pictures about ourselves and notions about ourselves. Probably everyone in this room has tasted it. We've all had moments when we feel uh, we've, we've come into contact with something deeper in us. And so think of the journey as that, of increasing an interior journey. And you could think of original nature or Buddha natures our optimum potential, our fullness, fulfillment, fullest fulfillment, who we truly and really are, in a sense, in back of all these culturally learned notions and images, commitments, 
of self. In its depth, and you know, I'm I'm not a an, uh, an expert on Christianity or Judaism for that matter. Perhaps it's the same as coming to know God. I, my sense is it is. And what's being said is that that journey can happen just through the breathing. Isn't that interesting? Just a simple bodily process. The Buddha says this. Our teacher, for those of you who have practiced long enough to feel that way. That conscious breathing is a path, a way that can bring us back to ourselves. Okay, as we, on Friday evening, what we started in working with the breath, essentially we've begun the first four of those 16 contemplations. There's no need to go through all of them. We don't have the time, nor would it serve much use right now. But it has to do with beginning to become familiar with your breathing. Uh, Beginning to see the relationship between the breath and the mind, how sensitive the the breath is, how very much the breath affects the mind and the body, and how the breath itself is also affected by the mind and, and the body. And as we come back to the breath time and time again, what is being accomplished is a unification, a consolidation. The mind becomes consolidated. All the divergent energies that are scattered, worrying about this, thinking about that, planning about this. There's the, uh, again, the monkey, a wild, drunken monkey mind. It's a Buddhist image. It is the original mind untrained. Is like a drunken monkey leaping from branch to branch in search of ever bigger and better bananas. Actually seeing that is quite an attainment. If you see the, the Tibetans have a term for it and it's the same practice. They call it seeing cascading mind. Like a water, just the incredible flow of thoughts and images and worries and plans. And I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. But they see it as an accomplishment. And you might say, what kind of an accomplishment is that? I mean, to see how crazy the mind is, how wild. Uh, everyone has that mind. There are people who are brain surgeons who have that mind, presidents of countries who have that mind, <laughs> and making all kinds of very important decisions despite having a mind like that. We have the uh, wonderful opportunity. We actually see it. My God. This is what's going through the day and doing all kinds of things. And if you don't, here you face a fork in the road. And some of you, I know, from based on the notes, I'm trying to, uh, can't possibly speak to all of you about a lot of the notes that you've sent us, but I'm doing my best to hit on some of the points that many of the notes were about. When you begin to see how wild the mind is, there's a fork in the road. Either you will get discouraged, use it to perhaps uh, deepen a negative sense of yourself, 
and of course eventually drift off the path. Maybe not so eventually. Maybe like tomorrow night. <laughs> Maybe you're already gone. Just your body is here. Don't take that fork in the road. The other turn in the road is seeing that, but understanding that there, it's not hopeless. That there is help available and that countless people have walked this path before us. We're not alone. Not only we're we not alone in the sense we have Sangha to support one another, but there have been other people just like ourselves who've faced the same mind. After all, the B- Buddha is talking about breathing is what the Buddha attained Anatara Samyaksambodhi with a breath. So just imagine it. The Buddha is no doubt an extraordinary human being like Jesus and a number of others, but he also was breathing just like us. And if he stopped and sat down and felt the breath, it felt like it does for us. Uh-oh. I should move on, right? <laughs> Stop rambling around so much. Just projecting. <laughs> but where were you before the bell? <laughs> I might have been rambling on, but you were running off. Yeah. So a lot of what we've... Uh, it's an, so it's an accomplishment. The cascading mind is an accomplishment when you see it, but rather than uh, seize upon it as an occasion for discouragement, begin to work, begin to understand, start the, the, the journey of calming and studying the mind. And there is help. There are all kinds of techniques and teachings that people are willing to listen to us rant and rave until we calm down. It takes years sometimes, always. And so we've begun that. We've started to do that. Every time you come back, you're contributing to that. And what happens little by little, and maybe you've already tasted it, is that the the mind, the breath, and the body become unified, become very compact in a sense, unified. And there's a, a sense of stability in that. Now, we haven't gotten to wisdom yet. This aspect of practice we refer to as shamatha or serenity training or tranquility training or calm abiding. Using the breath and coming back to it time and time again, what happens is we become absorbed. We sink deeper and deeper into consciousness. The breath is the vehicle for that. And as we become more and more absorbed, we find a certain joy and peace that seems to be intrinsic to the mind. It's not that it's imported from Japan or anywhere else. It's in all of us, wherever you are and wherever you're born and so forth. And you feel it. People, you feel a bit of maybe it's a few seconds at first, but then it can be extended periods of stillness where you feel very happy and loving and peaceful. And when you come out of the stillness, uh, the grass looks greener and the sky looks more blue and you're kinder to people, you see them suffering and you feel it and you behave uh, more like a human being. And so 
even before we've begun the work of actual wisdom, some happiness is being brought into our life just by getting concentrated. Some of this is not so, shouldn't be so surprising. When you see a film that you really like, you, it holds your attention, you're very concentrated. And if you have something in your life that you like, photography, dance, tennis, or your work, maybe an operation, if you're a brain surgeon, whatever it is, there's a, in those moments when we're totally concentrated, they can be very fulfilling. Especially if it's right concentration. I mean, if you're very concentrated in order to um, break into a bank, you know, to, bullet, to do something with the safe, there might be a little bit of anxiety attached to it. That isn't considered samadhi in, in, in Buddhist practice. That's called wrong samadhi, micha samadhi. But this is wholesome what we're doing. We've taken a benign object, the breathing, and as we get to know it and more and more are continuous in our ability to, to experience it. You can feel some calm. Also, if you, maybe you've noticed this, but if not, please see if it's so. When you learn how to opt for coming to the breath, rather than all of the preoccupations that the mind throws out. I mean, look at the mind this way. It's a lot like... Uh, Someone throws a bone and the dog runs after it. Only it's your own mind that's throwing the bone. And the bone are all these production, productions, concoctions, fashionings, notions. And then we just become preoccupied and run after them. He said and she said and he said and she said. Why didn't they? Well, you know, all of the mind is endlessly creative. And we become preoccupied and a lot of it is suffering. Not a whole lot of it is peaceful or leads to peace. But check me out. Maybe it's just my mind. Well, now we have already something very, very helpful. We, it's like switching channel. Let's say we have channel preoccupation or channel dog runs after the bone. The mind's all over the place. We now can disentangle, disengage ourselves from all of those preoccupations, many if not most of which are not so useful and go to the breathing. We have a new option that we never had before. And in the process of doing that, we can find that we don't have to necessarily, fatalistically and ineluctably suffer because the mind is filled up with stuff that we don't want to be there. We can very gracefully and gently, it's like taking a needle off the, off these, those, the old records, you know, from caveman days. Take, just gently take it off and put it on the breath. And as, as your ability to do that increases, you have a way of breaking some of these circuits. Breaking is not the wrong word, but you short-circuit them in a way. And so you don't have to suffer inevitably all the time. You have an option, which is to lift yourself out of some preoccupation, some depression, some anger, some fear, whatever it is. And instead, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. It gets very powerful if you do it. Okay, in the process, we bring more happiness to ourselves, more calmness, more steadiness. We feel it. Those of you who have been practicing for a while know what I'm talking about. Newcomers, you'll just have to have faith for a little while. 
also some of those very negative tendencies by not nourishing them, by getting attached to them in the mind, they get a little weaker. That is, instead of constantly getting caught up in every preoccupation and in the process strengthening it, what happens is we say, no, I'm going to the breath instead. And so the preoccupation is weakened a bit. We don't water it. So it'll have a little bit less potency in the future. But it's not uprooted. Okay, so this phase of practice is designed to make the mind, render the mind fit to look into itself, to get to the genuine, to insight work, vipassana. It's not quite so neat and tidy, but in terms of just trying to communicate why we're doing these things. One aspect of our practice is to help the mind become calm, steady, peaceful, clear. Why? Well, it's valuable in and of itself. And, it, moreover, it leads to the ability to look more deeply into ourselves and to see what's there and to come to a deeper understanding. And it's the understanding that really frees us. It's the understanding that gets to the bottom of things, that uproots things. And so we need both. And our practice is developing shamatha, serenity, vipassana, insight or reflection. And mindfulness is central to the whole thing. Mindfulness is the right there in the middle of everything. What is this mindfulness, anyway, that we've been talking about? We use it so much that after a while, you know, we assume we know what we're talking about. We've already been using it in just being with the breath, this placing our attention uh, on an object, in this case the breath, not slipping off it, but sticking with it and going, penetrating it, going, enveloping it, surrounding it, really feeling it, becoming intimate with it, experiencing it. But let me give you more, some other aspects of mindfulness, especially now that we move to wisdom, and as I hope you'll see in a moment, uh, why I need to do this. And I hope this will help with some of the notes and questions in the discussion groups. Mindfulness, sati, S-A-T-I, in the Pali language, is mirror-like. Its job is to reflect what's in front of it, just as it is, right there and then. That's its job. The beauty of mindfulness is that it's a clear mirror, and it shows you whatever's in front of it. So that's one, trying to give you some feeling for what, what is mindfulness, what isn't mindfulness. So one aspect of it, it has a mirror-like quality. And I'll be saying the same thing in slightly different ways. It's pre-conceptual. It's not thinking. Some of you uh, are a little confused about that. Mindfulness is not thinking. There's no thinking in it. Mindfulness precedes thinking. Mindfulness can be aware of thinking, but it itself is its an empty mirror. It can show that thinking is happening in the mirror. Thinking comes, here's the mirror, thinking is in front of it, it shows it just as it is. It's unbiased. 
It's not for or against anything that it's the, in other words, the mirror is aimed at an object to reflect it and it's unbiased. It's not for or against whatever it is you're being mindful of. This is genuine mindfulness that we're learning how to do. It doesn't add to it. It doesn't subtract from it. It's not proud of certain things and ashamed of other things. Those are things that mindfulness can become mindful of. The mirror can shine on pride and shame. But it itself doesn't do that. In fact, it has no goal other than seeing. It has no goal. And we damage our mindfulness when we kind of pollute it a bit, when we become so goal-oriented that we want to be mindful in order to get somewhere. And then suddenly it's not really mindful anymore because we're, we have this bias. We uh, are adding or subtracting something. We are trying to use it to get something we want. And in the process, the mirror doesn't work so well anymore. It becomes like those amusement park mirrors which distort your image. So it's mirror-like, it's preconceptual, it's unbiased, it's non-judgmental. It only happens now. The only time mindfulness can happen is in the present tense. There's no such thing as mindfulness yesterday. You can talk about that, but that wouldn't be mindfulness. So mindfulness can only happen right now. And its only goal is just the seeing clearly what is happening right now. (coughs) Also, it's participatory. Mindfulness, and this is contrary to what some people think that our observation work is. It's not a kind of cold, detached view from Mount Olympus with binoculars. You know, there's fear. I I see fear down there in the valley, (laughs) looking at it. You actually have to enter into it. You have to participate as you observe. You have to become one with what you're observing. So it's a full experience of life. You feel, if there's fear, you're feeling the fear. Not that you're up in the mountain uh, watching it as if it's happening to someone else. Now the mirror image breaks down here. It's not cold. It's very breathing and feel. It's alive. It's, it's our experience. It's our intimate experience of life from moment to moment. But this experience, uh, it, can, it is possible to learn how to, in the midst of participating in life, to remain uh, clear. So that we're, the fear is not tampered with. We're not trying to change it. We're not trying to get rid of it. It's not thinking about fear and so forth, all the other examples. We're right plunged in the fear, but we're experiencing it as it is. And we can learn how to do that. That's what we are learning how to do. This mindfulness is always seeing change, coming and going, coming and going. Okay, does this give you a little bit better sense of of what it is? Now, here's why it's so important. I would say most of the notes had to do with what do you do about very troublesome states of mind? I have fears. How do I work with fears? I'm very angry lately. How do I work with that? I have a lot of conflict and confusion. How do I work with that? Okay, let's get ahead of the practice now and 
some of you may begin to practice this way, even this evening. Some of the people have been practicing for a while, perhaps are already doing it, or tomorrow. But even if you don't feel ready to do it, and you may not, you've had a glimpse already, sometime in the future you'll be able to do it. Let's just take a, a typical one of these uh, mind states. Take fear. That seemed to be a, a big one. There were a, a fair number of notes that had to do with fear one way or another. When the fear arises, what we're learning how to do is for mindfulness and conscious breathing to meet the fear, to fully experience it. Now, when we're afraid, typically what we do is we deny it, we run from it, we explain it away intellectually, we become absorbed in something else, even the breath. You get really good at the breath, breath concentration. You can go so deeply into the breath that you don't feel afraid, but you've not eliminated the fear. It's just, it's, uh, it goes into abeyance and it'll be back. So you become very calm and peaceful, but when you come out, we're the same fool, just a calm and peaceful fool. The looking that we have now, when the fear comes up, the, the mindfulness meets the fear face to face. Now, that sounds frightening, and it is for all of us. It's something that has to be learned. We have to learn how to do that. And often we fail a lot because we hate fear so much or anger or whatever you want to put in. The conscious breathing has a vital role to play here. Not only are we using the conscious breathing to maintain an ongoing level of stability and calm and steadiness, and you can be in touch with your breath throughout the day, not only here, but when you go home, and you'll see it'll have an effect on your life. But let's say in this particular case when there's a very highly charged affect that's, that's come upon us, like fear, it's as if you have a companion to hold your hand or a good friend. Breathing in, I'm aware of fear. Breathing out, I'm aware of fear. So that we turn directly to the fear. But you see, the breath, the beauty of the breathing is that it's always going on. It's not something we have to cultivate. It's not really a technique that has to be learned in that sense. It's natural. And as you do it more and more, it becomes a steady companion. And so it helps the mind become steady enough to uh, carry out all of those aspects of mindfulness. To, to, to experience the fear without a bias, without trying to get rid of it, without trying to make it more or less. And it's not thinking. So the breath helps us keep the mind clear and steady as we enter into whatever it is that's happening. And most of the sutra is about how to do that. In other words, after the mind learns how to get calm, uh, the breath is now used along with the full range of mental and physical events, the whole mind-body process. Now, another uh, aspect of our learning, you know, you probably have heard Narayana say so many times, just let the breath assume its own rhythm, go its own way, don't tamper with it, don't control it. Put in other terms, we're learning how to surrender, which is at the core of, I would say, all spiritual work. We're learning how to surrender at first to the breathing. To, can we just let the breath, can we leave it alone for goodness sakes? 
Can we let the breath just be shallow if it wants to be, deep if it wants to be? Can we let each breath be just what it seems to want to be? And if you look carefully, you probably know that it's not so easy to do that. We kind of help it along. We control it. We try to, now that we found out there's some cash value in the breath, we even tamper with it more. The ego didn't know that breathing was so valuable. Now it wants a piece of, you know, get some approval for having long, deep, quiet, smooth, joyful breaths. But what, what about when you don't get them? So then we force it or we restrict ourselves or we're afraid to let the breath out because we have a hard time letting go of things. Or we suck breath in because we're afraid we don't have enough nourishment. And whatever our particular stamp that we put on the breathing, we do control it. And you'll see that more and more. But, as you, but you can learn how to let go of, of that and just allow the breath to just be what it is. Now, as you learn how to do that with the breathing, can you see how it's a short step to learn how to do that with, the, with your feelings and your mind, your heart, so that you can allow fear to be fear, you can allow hatred to be hatred, you can allow despair to be despair, and whatever it is that we human beings... Uh, all these states that visit us, that come and go, come and go. So the practice at a certain point, and this is very advanced practice, in my opinion, becomes the art of doing nothing. The art of learning how to do absolutely nothing, in one sense. It's quite laborious to get to that place. We have to strive and a lot of dead ends and so forth. What I mean by that is this. The practice ripens. This simple thing that you've already started to do, if you keep at it, it ripens into a kind of practice where you're just sitting and breathing and allowing whatever is happening to happen. In short, you're learning how to just be yourself. Can you just be yourself? Instead of editing things all the time to make us into the ideal this or the terrible this, can we just let it all unfold? Now, that's a high art, and that's, again, it's surrender. We're learning how to surrender to things as they are. Only in this case, the things as they are is us. And so as we sit and breathe, the breath is kind of in the midst of everything because it's always happening, and it provides us with an ongoing kind of anchor. And while we're breathing, sometimes we're visited by just the sound of birds chirping and or silence, or a truck driving by, and then another time is resentment or restlessness, and we see that arise and pass away. And by the way, mindfulness has no self in it. It's not an egocentric thing. Mindfulness just sees there's no... When we add something onto it, my mindfulness, I just saw, that's extra. In fact, mindfulness can even see that can even see how we load something onto it and kind of make the mirror into us. And so the practice becomes uh, sitting joyfully and peacefully and learning how to let whatever needs to be to be and let it all come out. Because as you learn, as you do, as you just sit, and sometimes the practice in other, in the Zen tradition is referred to as just sitting, which is a very, to me, a very mature practice. Is, I don't even know if you can call it a technique, really. You're just sitting, you're being yourself. And you sit right in the middle of your experience, of what are the, what are, right in, your, in the middle of your life, from moment to moment. And 
as you do that, to do that as an invitation to the depths of your being to come to the surface. As you give up the controls and stop trying to be this, that, or the other and just sit and breathe, of course what starts to come up are what's there. Whatever is there starts to come up. And maybe it's stuff that you haven't wanted to see or that you don't like, but it's there. And the path is gradual. By and large, you don't, you're not forced to see things before you're ready to see them. And it's best to not have any pictures as to what it is you think you're, oh, I'm done with that problem, work my way through that one. Maybe. Don't know. Next minute, a different version of it could come back. But the training, the important aspect of the training is to not get invested in these particular outcomes, particular states of mind, but rather uh, to just be, be yourself, and to be conscious of that self as it begins to display itself to you. It's the self displaying itself to the self, if you want to use that kind of strange language. And the liberation comes from from that. The seeing that everything that arises, all of our deepest fears, our deepest hatred, they are impermanent. And they lack a core. It's not they're not self. They don't belong to us. They're not us. Now it may sound strange or it may sound like an ideology, uh, and it is unless you actually see it, and that's why practice is needed. Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is about emptiness. You probably have heard that term, but that's probably the most misunderstood. It's empty of any sense of an inherent being, an inherent sense of self. It doesn't mean that there's nothing happening, that you're not there, that you're a zero. It means that when we probe into ourselves and look into our, what we think of as our identity, there's something there all right, but it's not quite what we thought it, it was. And Perhaps that's the supreme addiction that we have. The mind is addicted to constantly describing itself to itself, telling itself what it is, what it used to be, and what it will be. I was awful, but now I'm meditating and I'll be wonderful. Born-again Buddhists. So... That's one aspect. That's basically, as I see it, that's the framework for it. And when the mind is really calm and concentrated, then you can get on with starting to see all the other things. And when it's not, it's best to go back and calm and concentrate the mind. And for all of us, even people who've been practicing for many years, it's a very skillful alternation. It's like using your right and left hand as they work together in harmony. So that sometimes the emphasis is more on calming and steadying the mind because the mind needs to be calmed and steadied. And at other times, it's taking that calmness and steadiness and investigating, exploring the way things are, seeing the arising and passing away of whatever is there. And the final step, which I can't deal with here, which Narayan will get into a bit tomorrow, has to do with it's not limited to just sitting or formal walking. The same awareness that we're developing here is meant to be brought into our life as we live it out from moment to moment. And so a a moment that's lived mindfully, I think, is a moment where you're more alive, where you're giving life to life. You're imbuing life with more life. And the moments when we live in inattention, 
in sleep, in sleepiness, in unawareness, in forgetfulness, is where we're almost dead. Killing life, not killing the physical body, but killing the quality of life, because we're not fully present. And so the journey becomes uh, not only sitting and walking, but the most ordinary things, washing the dishes and hugging your child and whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, it all is the same. The pra- the, wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. Perfect. Couldn't be better. So now we're here. We're here at a place where you do a lot of formal sitting and walking. So we do this wholeheartedly. Tomorrow you'll be taking out the garbage. You know, you'll be home, in other words. And that's not inferior. Can we learn that? Can we learn not to go home and think, oh, I've got to get back to IMS where it's really at? We just destroyed it when we do that. Sure, come back. It's va- this has an a, a, a invaluable contribution to make, these protected settings. It's really like a, uh, an ingenious stage set with support and so much taken care of so that we can really develop It's like a protection around us so that we can become stronger. But if you then make this an end in itself, we've we've, uh, not understood what the teachings of the Buddha are. And so when it's time to leave here, we just let it go. But we bring the same wholeheartedness to whatever else is next. It's something like that. Anyway, for me it is. That's how I see what I'm doing and uh, what I'm attempting to communicate to others who may want to do it, may want to try and do it, live that way. Okay, can we have a moment's stillness, please? <clears throat>